everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. If you're listening to this as it comes out, I'm sorry it's going up a little bit later than I had thought it would. As you might have noticed, for the past several episodes, Corey has been recording his half of the conversation remotely because he's been out of the country. And Lisa and I finally got a chance to visit him and his partner, and it was really nice. But between travel delays and some issues with internet accessibility, I wasn't able to get as much work done on the show as I would have liked to while we were gone, so it's going up a little bit late. Sorry about that. If it's any consolation, we had a great time. It was an odd experience for me, too, being in a Spanish-speaking country, because it made me realize that not only do I not speak Spanish, but I know worse than no Spanish. Because from working in the service industry most of my life, I've picked up a few Spanish words and phrases from friends and coworkers over the years, but I realized they are almost literally all swears, insults, and sexual innuendos. So while in an emergency, I can cobble those words together in a way that can communicate, I end up sounding like a particularly vulgar baby. Which is not ideal. One phrase that I did know, which ended up being very useful, was Necesito el baño. I need to use the bathroom. That phrase proved very useful, although in one particular instance, I attempted to modify it to convey a sense of urgency and attempted to say, I'm sorry, but I need to use the bathroom right now. And what I came up with was, Lo siento, pero necesito el baño siempre. Which it turns out means, I'm sorry, but I need to use the bathroom forever. Which was probably more accurate. Anyway, you didn't come here for a language lesson from someone incompetent to teach one. You came here for a comic book lesson from someone incompetent to teach one. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Jay Logsdon. On what the duck, Hub, and Lisa talk about kiss, but this has tightened up the defense, so here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Jay both for the rhyme and for giving me the opportunity to plug the show What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. The Howard the Duck podcast that is available to our Patreon donors at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Jay is referring to the fact that in a recent episode, we talked about Howard the Duck number 12, which featured the first comic book appearance of the band Kiss. Thanks, Jay. Defenders, number 68. February. 1979. Val and Valhalla Part 3. Valhalla Can Wait. Written by David Anthony Kraft. A little bit, but not really. I mean, he started the storyline going, but then by this point was pretty much off the book. And Ed Hannigan, who did pretty much all the actual writing of this book. Drotted by Herb Trimpe. Inkted by Pablo Marcos. Lettered by Elaine Heinel. Colored by Bob Sharon and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. The Hulk. Hellcat. Nighthawk. Valkyrie. And a cast of thousands of dead people and Asgardians. 
previously in The Defenders. Oof, we kind of got to go way back for this one. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, a young woman named Barbara Norris joined an evil cult. When she found out the cult was not merely evil but super duper evil, she turned on her cult buddies and helped Doctor Strange and the Hulk save the world. For her troubles, Barbara was banished to some goofball cosmic dimension where she started dating a three-headed demon who Cory and I decided was named Glenn. Eventually, a fledgling Defenders non-team stumbled into Glenn and Barbara's neck of the woods. Doctor Strange decided to rescue Barbara by severing her mystic bond with Glenn, only he forgot to ask Babs if she wanted rescuing first. She didn't. Bad move, Steve. The psychic backlash from Steve's intrusive magical meddling left a traumatized Miss Norris in a compromised mental condition in which her only means of communication was shrieking a long string of capital A's. The victimized vehement vowel vocalizer soon ran afoul of an Asgardian asshole named the Enchantress, who used her magical nonsense powers to overwrite Barbara's personality with that of everyone's favorite super-powered Scandinavian swordslinger, Valkyrie. Val took over Barbara's body and joined the Defenders, helping our titular non-team save the world on numerous occasions. In more recent events, Valkyrie was summoned to return to Asgard to lead an army for Hela, the god of the dead. An upstart Asgardian named Olerus, the god of skiing and archery, who wore a fancy suit of armor that made him look like a street shark, had decided he was tired of ruling over biathlons and would like to try his hand at Hela's job. Olerus and his hench people, Popo the Cunning and Cassiolina, had moved into Valhalla, the Norse realm reserved for brave warriors who had died in battle, and began recruiting an army of the dead to help them seize Hela's throne. Hela wasn't crazy about the idea of giving up her throne to a skiing shark enthusiast, so she began marshalling her own forces to thwart Olerus. Valkyrie received Hela's draft notice and headed to Valhalla to report for duty. On her way, she bumped into the Norns, the Norse versions of the Three Fates, who prophesied that Valkyrie would be banished to burn in flames in Niflheim, and that the Defenders, along with a large percentage of the Earth's population, would die soon. Bummer! Val did her best to ignore this unsettling prognostication and checked in with Hela. Hela assigned her to work with an old friend named Haroken, who despite being named after a video game sound effect, seemed like a decent guy. The first skirmish in the war for the Land of the Dead began. The army seemed pretty evenly matched at first, but then Olerus rode up in a giant mobile mountain that was shaped like a shark's fin and made earthquakes, and things started looking pretty grim for Team Hela. Valkyrie busted into the Sharkfin Mountain playset and was surprised to encounter her old Asgardian body lying motionless on the ground. The surprise shield maiden reached out to touch herself, which triggered some sort of sorceress switcheroo, and suddenly the Scandinavian superhero was unconscious, and the previously dormant personality of Barbara Norris had transferred itself into Val's old body. Oh no! The newly ascended Barbara seemed not only to have abandoned her exclusive enunciation of capital A's in favor of speaking in complete sentences, but had also formed an evil alliance with Olerus and his hench people. Val was imprisoned, and Barbara and her new buddies began the next phase of their sinister scheme. They pointed a giant magic space laser at Midgard, asterisk Earth, and used it to kill the Hulk, Patsy, and Nighthawk. Ouch! Then Barbara, masquerading as Val, went to Earth to recruit the souls of her dead buddies to fight on Team Stupid Shark Hat. Diabolical! Olerus then space lasered a bunch of random muscly dudes to death and yoinked their souls as well. While well, the shark-hatted shitbird and his malicious minions were engaging in recruiting practices that would give even a Division I football coach pause, Valkyrie managed to bust out of her cell and rejoin Haroken and his army. Together they marshaled Hela's forces and prepared for an epic battle against an army that, unbeknownst to Val, contained three of her fellow defenders. Gadzooks! 
After years of riding shotgun in her own body, is Barbara Norris finally going to have some good luck? How will the Hulk react when he learns he's been duped by duplicitous deities? And is our titular non-team's demise a permanent condition? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Not unless she's super into eternal damnation, she isn't. He throws a boulder at a flying horse and beats up a mountain. And it's a comic book and none of them are named Uncle Ben, so of course not. Olerus assembles his army of recently deceased dupes in front of his magic mountain and gives them a little speech. He's like, Man, sure sucks that you're all dead for no apparent reason, but I'll tell you one thing for sure, I didn't murder you. No siree. I bet Hella did. Let's all go kick her butt. Hulk, Nighthawk, Hellcat, you guys are new here and don't really know what's going on, so why don't you be in charge of the army? If you have any questions, Barbara, I, I mean Valkyrie, will fill you in. Okay, now go double murder the other dead guys for me so that I can be in charge. Thanks! Meanwhile, on the other side of Valhalla, Haroken asks Hella. So, seeing as you're the god of death, couldn't you just use your powers to end this fight at any point? Hella replies, Yeah, probably, but also, shut up. Now, go fight. Good pep talk, Hella. The two forces collide and an epic Donnybrook of the Dead ensues. The Hulk and the other defenders are pretty much whooping Hella's army by themselves. Val doesn't know her buddies are on the other team, but sees that the fight isn't going so great for her side. She's worried that the Sharkfin Mountain playset will start earthquaking it up again, the way it did before, so she decides to scout ahead on her flying horse Aragorn and see if she can neutralize the threat in some way. On her way there, she runs into a familiar face. Her own. Barbara Norris is rather enjoying being in control of Valkyrie's old body, and is wearing Val's new costume. She prepares to face off against the Valkyrie, who is still in Barbara's body and wearing Val's old costume. Also, the Barbara-piloted Val body managed to find a second flying horse somewhere. Fair enough. As Val slash Barbara gets ready to fight Barbara slash Val, Hella pops over to Odin the Allfather's office in Asgard to have a chat. She approaches Odin's throne and is like, Hey, remember how you asked me to run Valhalla for you? Well, there's this shark-hatted dipshit who's gunning for my job. You're not on his side, are you? Odin replies, no, but also, fuck you. Clean up this Olerus situation, restore order to Valhalla, and then, as soon as you do that very difficult task, you're fired. Gee, Odin, way to motivate your employees. Back in Valhalla, Valkyrie and Barbara are about to square off when the rest of the defenders show up and are like, What the fuck? Barbara Norris is like, I've got the newest version of the costume, which means I'm the real Valkyrie. Kill that other lady who looks like me, but clearly isn't because she's wearing slightly older clothes. The Hulk says, okie dokie, and throws a giant boulder at Val and Aragorn. Gee, for a guy who runs around in shredded purple jorts, the Hulk sure is easily swayed by a fashion-based argument. Once Val is KO'd, Barbara keeps acting like a jerk, and eventually the defenders are like, say... You wouldn't happen to be Barbara Norris, would you? You know, the woman whose life and mind we ruined after she sacrificed herself to save the universe? Barbara's like, No. Maybe. Okay, yes. Then she flies off. Whoops. 
Hulk, Patsy, and Kyle manage to wake up Valkyrie and apologize to her for the mix-up. Then they find Haroken and tell him that they'd like to switch sides if that's okay. Haroken thinks that sounds just fine, and with the Defender's aid, Hela's army lays waste to the opposing forces. Hooray! Unfortunately, Olerus still has one trick left up his elaborately armored sleeve. He prepares to deploy his magic attack mountain. Oh no! But then the Hulk spends four pages smashing the shit out of the mountain until all that's left is a pile of magic pebbles. Hooray! Olerus is pretty pissed off that his favorite toy just got broken. He yells that he's gonna biathlon everybody to double death or something, but Hela shows up and is like, Shut up! I'm tired of this storyline! Time to resolve everything! Let's see. Olerus, you and Barbara Norris are banished to Niflheim, which in the Marvel version of Norse mythology more or less means hell, and you know what? I'm gonna go there too. Haroken, you're in charge of Valhalla now. Oh, and the defenders and everyone else who got killed by the magic space laser, good news, you aren't dead anymore. Okay, bye! Um, okay. Hooray? After bidding a somewhat awkward goodbye to Haroken, Valkyrie and the defenders head back to Midgard, asterisk Earth, to fill out the necessary not-dead-anymore paperwork. I bet in the Marvel Universe there are probably some pretty standard forms for that. Probably don't even need a notary. And as eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother Cory accidentally incurred the wrath of Odin by drinking from his mead flagon and was banished to Niflheim. Fortunately, he ended up in a pretty nice part of Niflheim, and even more fortunately, he was able to find a portal and continue to communicate with us and record this show. So, Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. And I gotta say that despite the banishment and everything, I don't regret the decision to, uh, to drink from that mead flask. Must have been some pretty good mead. I do have kind of some bad news about Niflheim, Corey. I think you might be dead. <laughs> you know, it it seems more of a temporary situation than I was led to believe initially. Oh, well, that that is good news. No, I mentioned at the opening of one of the previous shows in this story arc that uh, my friend Miles knows a great deal more about the Marvel version of Norse mythology than I do. And I had the opportunity to talk to him a little bit about it and pick his brain a little bit. And so I was able to get some disambiguation about Niflheim. Unfortunately, a lot of that information was knocked immediately out of my brain by the fact that right after that conversation, we saw the movie Cats. Oh, no. Which I think broke something in me. Why did you do that? I had to know. And honestly, I do not regret it. Except in as much as there are things that I may be unlearned about Asgard as it is in Marvel Comics. But one of the main takeaways was I had thought that they were conflating Niflheim with Muspelheim, and that was why there were the flames. But if I remember correctly, in the Marvel version of Norse mythology, they have no Helheim, and so they kind of use Helheim and Niflheim interchangeably, which makes a lot of sense in this comic because it talks about Hela returning to Niflheim. It still is pretty confusing to me, and I think part of that comes from the fact that they use Asgard as a catch-all phrase for where all of Norse mythology takes place, but also as one of the specific nine realms, and so there's some 
ambiguity there that uh, I think is causing some dissonance for me. But bad news, you might be dead. Good news, I'm glad it's pleasant there. Wow. I was listening as intently as I could, but it's still... I'm still glad that I'm wrapped in the, the cozy blanket of ignorance about Norse mythology because I am not experiencing that same level of uh, of dissonance that you mentioned. Glad to hear it. And I guess also the upside of the you possibly being dead now is that we learned from this comic book, death is a sometimes thing and can be reversed without too much red tape. Yeah, I mean, for Val, it made sense. For the rest of the gang was a little more like, well, okay, yeah, you were dead technically, but we're just going to send you back. Right. Well, let's just jump in and start talking about the comic book as a whole, shall we? Sure. So overall, what did you think of this comic book? Overall, it honestly seemed like a lot of pages for not a whole lot of... um, for not a whole lot of things happening other than one, you know, really big battle. So yeah, I felt both frustrated and kind of relieved at the pace of storytelling. It seemed like to get to the middle of the plot, they took kind of a circuitous route and there were a lot of nuance and subterfuge and added storylines. It's like they were following the maze on like a kid's menu at a family restaurant to get to the middle of the maze. And then to get out of it, they were just like, fuck it, and just drew a straight line. And that straight line was the Hulk smashing a mountain. Even more so than that, maybe I missed something, but was the straight line not Hella just being like, okay, guys, you know what? It's over. I mean, partly. I mean, I think the Hulk ended the battle, and then there had been a setup of continued potential, I don't know, political machinations and shit between both Odin and Hela and Olorus and Hela. And yeah, Hela basically said, okay, fuck it, fight's over, I'm going back to hell. And I think she did that because Odin told her, look, whether you win or lose this, you're fucking done here. Yeah, right. But like what happened to Olorus, right? He was just basically then, he could have been free to beat up Harukin or do whatever he wanted. It was almost like that whole battle was for uh, for not. Well, Hela said at the end of it that she was going to banish him to hell because I guess his army was there to protect him from that happening before or the mountain was there to protect it. Yeah, I don't know. There was a lot of just like, it seemed like they cut through the Gordian knot in a way that didn't necessarily make a ton of sense, but was certainly expedient. And so the not making a ton of sense was kind of frustrating, but the expediency of it was, I was kind of done with this storyline too, and I'm glad we're out of it. (laughs) Yep. That being said, I kind of liked the issue in a lot of ways. I definitely had some problems with it, but I like Herb Trimpe's art, and I was glad to see him take over the pencils in it. And he's working with uh, an inker named Pablo Marcos, whose name we have seen before. Do you remember his name? It's not ringing a bell. Uh, Refresh my memory. Uh, We decided that he did the worst job on pencils in the entire original Teen Titans run. 
Oh, okay. He did the issue that started the second wave of Teen Titans comics uh, in the later 70s. And I looked back at that, and honestly, it's not that bad. I think it was just jarring in comparison to the art that had graced the pages of Teen Titans previous to that. But I was like, oh, no, this guy. And I thought he did a good job, and I always like Herb Trim base art, and I dug it. Yeah, I enjoyed the, the art, too, especially the epic battle scenes where it was in some ways um like there was like almost cinematography to it where there would be these zoomed out shots with like all the dust rising from thousands of people on horseback riding towards the viewer and then you know zooming into really complicated melee with tons of different moving parts and that aspect of it was really fun to read yeah So I think in a lot of ways, this issue works to kind of reset the Defender series and give it a new normal so that Ed Hannigan can take over and start really crafting his own storylines. To that end, we get a few different takeaways from this. I think the main one is that Barbara Norris is no longer a going concern as part of Val. Yep. And uh, Val's back to her old costume. Yeah. Which I think... I was just going to say that confirms my my fears at the outset of this story arc, that it was all an elaborate plot to do that. But I I think your resetting is is probably a more accurate reading. Yeah, but I think it's kind of both. I mean, I don't think when the storyline started, it was with the idea that there would be a reset craft left in the middle of the storyline. But yeah, the effect is you get Val back in her old costume. And you don't have to worry about her having her identity crisis with Barbara Norris anymore, I guess, because Barbara Norris is now burning in hell, which seems pretty unfair, I gotta say. The other resets are for the Marvel Universe at large, where Odin is now running Valhalla again through Harokin, I guess. And the Defenders team is reassembled, Hulk had gone off during the Defender for a Day storyline, and now he's back, and you are back to the core team of Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, and Patsy. How is Norris going to handle this, Jack Norris? Man. He can't, can't go yelling, where's my wife anymore, at Val? I mean, he can, but there is now a very simple answer to that. She is burning in hell. Go get her, buddy. Have at it. Yeah, have fun in Norse hell. I was pretty annoyed when Hulk asked who Barbara Norris was because the name sounded familiar. And Kyle described her as, oh, she's Jack Norris's wife. It's like, she's also her own person who you have more connection to than you do Jack Norris. Like, Mm -hmm. it seemed pretty fucked up. And I feel like in general, Barbara Norris got pretty short shrift in this issue from pretty much everybody. Yeah, she did. I mean, also, it seemed like a pretty big leap to go from, I guess, the first impression of her, you know, struggles that we have is her just like yelling, ah, way back when, when she's in space. Yeah, just long string of capital vowels was the first sign of her mystically induced madness after Steve broke her mind by not asking consent to remove her from psychic contact with her three-headed demon husband thing. Right. And then we go from that to as soon as she's separated from Val, she's just like a, a evil uh, warlord person. Which somehow the rest of the team reads as 
her being like magically insane still. And it doesn't scan. And they're not competent to diagnose that, especially Kyle, who I think is the first person who says that. I mean, between him and the Hulk, like she's pissed off, but she's not as pissed off as the Hulk generally is. And she's maybe a little bit impulsive, but not as impulsive as Kyle is. And also Kyle was a disembodied brain sitting in a punch bowl, not like a year ago. So I don't think he's in any position to be gauging anyone else's mental stability or judging them for it. And yet. And yet. Honestly, Barbara Norris was one of a few characters who I thought were treated unfairly in this and are treated as villains, but I felt pretty bad for. Other than her, I also felt pretty bad for Hela. Did you at all? Yeah, in the sense that people, and I guess by people, I mean Olerus and people under his sway <laughs> in the in the previous issues were basically saying that either she's like an imposter Hella, or for some reason doing a, a terrible job at keeping um, Valhalla how it's supposed to be. Yeah, and in the last issue, we learned that Odin had asked her to run Valhalla because he was too busy, and now Odin's just shitting all over her for it. It seemed like he gave her an impossible task. She did an okay job of it, but Somebody tried to wrest control from her, and he's blaming her for that and telling her that she's not just fired, but that she has to finish doing the very difficult job that she is trying to do, and after that, she is fired, which is not a way to motivate your employees. No, sir. That is the opposite of that. I'm surprised that she went back to work at all. I wouldn't have. I would have been like, fuck, okay, uh, if I'm going to be banished to hell afterwards, fuck it, take the place, Olerus. I mean, I think part of it was that she was pissed off at Olerus, which I get. But it did seem like during the battle, Harokin is just like, couldn't you just banish him right away? And she was like, yeah, but that really wouldn't be in the spirit of Valhalla. Like, it is a place of battle and lusty battle, and that's the reward for these warriors. I don't want to deprive them of it. It seems like she's trying to get in the spirit of the place, and everybody's shitting on her, including Valkyrie, who's like, oh god, I can't believe this lady's running things. It really seems unfair. Yep. So if anybody offers you the job of uh, being in charge of Valhalla, I would advise you to say no thanks. Yeah, I, I guess somebody should have uh, probably warned Harokin about that. Although, frankly, I don't know if he'll have as bad a time. This does strike me as potentially being the result of sexism in the workplace. Another source of frustration to me with this storyline was the fact that this is a Valkyrie story. It is centered around Valkyrie. She is the focal character, and she has very little agency in the story. She's not the hero of her own story, and it bothers me in the same way it bothered me in the New Teen Titans one that was the Lilith-centric story in which she just got captured. I mean, Valkyrie escaped from the Sharkfin Mountain playset before, but then had to be rescued by Harokin. And then going forward in this issue, she gets knocked unconscious again, which happened in the previous issue, and kind of sits out a lot of the big battle stuff. And I really would like her to be the hero of her own story. And it was kind of frustrating for me that it was just like, oh, and then the Hulk wins the battle and it's all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when in fact it's the Hulk's doing that she got knocked out in the first place because he threw a rock at her. And he threw a rock at Aragorn, which I felt so bad for that horse. And I was trying to 
work out some mitigating factor because I do like the Hulk, but also because I wanted Aragorn to be okay, and I do not see how that horse is going to be okay. He's going to go back to the hospital. That poor guy has had such a bad run of it. I almost feel like he's taken the brunt of the injuries in, in Val's battles where he's been involved. Oh, he absolutely has. Yeah, sucks to be Aragorn. And it's weird that I like Aragorn as much as I do because I am afraid of horses because I think that their heads are too big. And also I'm afraid of birds and he is kind of an unholy hybrid of those things. But my heart goes out to the guy. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same page with you there. I haven't always seen eye to eye with equine or avian friends, but uh, I do feel bad for the creature. Do you think that Aragorn has a cloaca? No, I think he's got probably just a regular horse butt. Okay, good. (laughs) I don't know why that's as big a relief for me as it is, but it is. No, I'm right there (laughs) with you. So... There are a couple of other characters that are bad guys that I feel bad for, not quite on the same scale as Hela and Barbara Norris, but in a certain sense, I am pretty sympathetic towards Popo and Cassiolina in that they seem to have really fallen under some poor management. Oleris is a really bad leader in this issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, he immediately promotes the Hulk, Kyle, and Patsy to management roles that they are incredibly unsuited for. Yeah, it's almost as if appointing somebody to a huge position of power for which they have no previous experience won't go well. Yeah, weird, huh? Yep. (laughs) You know who else I feel really bad for is the henchman or the guy in the orange shirt on page 10 that Hulk just gets a hold of in the middle of the battle. (laughs) Oh, the peasant shake? Yeah, he's just like, oh my goodness, this is not what I signed up for. He looks totally horrified. He absolutely does. I really pictured that what was happening in that scene was just the Hulk grabbing him by the shoulders and just yelling in his face, just like, ah! And the guy just going, ah! (laughs) I fear for what happened to him after the comical yelling at each other, like he's just going to get torn in half or tossed way too far for safety. Well, the nice thing is, presumably, both sides in this battle are already dead and have virtually indestructible bodies, because that's part of how Valhalla works, with the exception of Valkyrie and Aragorn. Oh, that's true. They're the only two actually uh, living in the normal sense. Yeah, they're the only ones with, like, corporeal normal bodies. So I I think the peasant who got yelled at by the Hulk is going to be okay, but probably not stoked. No, he's definitely going to have like some bad dreams. Mm-hmm. But as I was saying, with Papo and Cassiolina, like it seemed like they were doing a pretty good job henching and to have new recruits immediately promoted over them. And I think Papo is in one background scene in this issue, but that's kind of it. It didn't sit well with me. And also, what a dumb plan to just be like, okay, so most of the other side has been warriors who have been honing their skills, battling against each other in eternal lusty combat for, let's say, ever. And on my side, I just got some new guys who uh, look like they exercise. Like, they're pretty buff. Yeah, I mean, just recruiting a bunch of Earth people, for lack of a better word, seems like maybe not the best idea. Yeah. But I think that perhaps Popo got his revenge because I noticed something happening 
with Olorus's outfit where it looked like the jaws of the shark helmet that he had are opening and closing at random intervals. What? It looks like how open the jaws of his shark hat are is kind of arbitrary. So in my mind, it was just on a constant cycle of slowly opening and closing throughout the course of the issue. And it really cracked me up to think about him trying to work around that problem uh, with his speeches. Yeah, that would be really distracting. Yeah, like on page six, it looks like it is much more closed than we are generally used to seeing that shark hat. And then on page 22, in the second panel he appears in, it is far more open than in the first panel he appears in it. Uh, And I think that is just going on in a cycle. I think that's a prank Popo played on him. And I got to say, well done, Popo. Yeah, that's a good boss trick. Uh Uh-huh. Mess with his shark hat. Yeah, so if you're listening and you have a boss who likes to dress like he's a street shark, maybe just do something to rig the jaws of his helmet so that it slowly opens and closes. I think it's going to undermine his authority. Good call. Thank you. So we saw that Hella has banished herself to Niflheim, as well as banishing Olerus to Niflheim, which... Seems like an odd way to phrase that. I mean, you can just go someplace without banishing yourself there. It's where she's from. She, If you're going voluntarily, I don't think you can say you're banishing yourself. But I did enjoy that turn of phrase. Seems a little a little passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a like, you don't, you can't fire me, I quit type thing. But like, you can't banish me, I'm banishing myself. So there. Yeah, like your partner's like, hey, could you turn that music down? <laughs> be like oh you mean banish it you know what i'm just gonna banish myself upstairs because i'm tired of this conversation i'll just banish myself to hell how's that uh i gotta banish myself to the bathroom i'll be back in like five minutes (laughs) banish it but what uh what tortures do you think hella has in mind for olorus once they get down to niflheim oh i didn't really picture her doing that but I guess it's a tortury kind of neck of the woods. Yeah. Like I said, I think they're using it kind of interchangeably with hell. So I don't know. Like, I mean, definitely he's not going to be doing any biathloning for quite some time. I don't know. Maybe she'll close his shark hat almost all the way, like permanently. Ooh, that's got to be frustrating. Mm-hmm. I bet she takes away the shark hat entirely and maybe makes him dress as a different tmnt ripoff like maybe she makes him a new suit that is like a uh wild west cowboy of moo mesa i bet he'd hate that i'm racking my memory banks for that reference but i'm i'm coming up empty it was one of the later cartoon ripoffs of the biker mice for mars era in wild west cowboys of moo mesa it would be anthropomorphic cows who were also cowboys Oh, that doesn't sound good. It was pretty great. Was it better than Street Sharks? Um, I mean, the Street Sharks were totally jawsome. <laughs> it's a tough call. It seemed like Val and Hirokin had a pretty awkward send-off at the end. Did you pick up on that? I feel like he's probably had a like a really serious crush on her for, I don't know, a millennia or however long things are in Valhalla. And he's just not good at expressing it yeah and i think is not really picking up on the cues that it is not reciprocated she is not hugging him back at all <laughs> that last panel it looks so uncomfortable 
It really looks so awkward, uh, especially she was just saying, no, I'm really excited to get back to Earth. And now that Barbara Norris isn't part of me, everything's coming up Valkyrie. And he's like, oh, this parting is such sweet sorrow. It breaks both our hearts. So you're really leaving forever? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, we're both so sad and gives her this big hug, which she does not return even slightly and looks really, really uncomfortable with. He gives such a big speech about there always being a place for her and that he will remember her and everything. And she sort of mumbles, me too. It's it's kind of like when somebody maybe for the first time says, oh, I love you. And you reply, thank you. Yeah, I love you so much. That's very flattering. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. I think you're a nice person. And then just like, chuck him on the shoulder and then run away excellent plan i was also kind of thrown by the fact that in the past couple of issues patsy has started abbreviating nighthawk to nh and those are my initials and also the initials of my home state of new hampshire and it really threw me and took me a minute to remember the context in which it was being said like, wait, why is she talking about New Hampshire or me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uncomfortable um, association. She should go back to calling him Nighty. Yeah, Nighty or just Kyle. Just, no, I don't wish to be associated with that. And I don't wish for Kyle to be associated with the state of New Hampshire. If anything, he's definitely a Connecticut guy. <laughs> yeah, no Granite State vibes whatsoever. It may come up in the panels, but I did want to get your thoughts on the very last page in the closing panel on page 31 when they're leaving via the Rainbow Bridge. Mm -hmm. It looks like the columns on the left and the right side of the panel have some writing on them. And the one on the left appears to say Kix, K-I-X, which reminds me of that breakfast cereal from the 80s. Mm -hmm. But I can't make out what the one on the right says. It looks like it says T-R something. I think it is the start of Trimp, so that would be Herb Trimpe's name, like they put the names on the columns in the previous issue. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if somebody on the creative team had the nickname of Kix, or if they were in fact just a big fan of the cereal that I always thought was going to be a little sweeter than it was. I guess this is a testament to the amount of energy that my parents put into denying sugar from our household, but I I found Kix to be very sweet. Yeah, see, for me, it was, I mean, it was definitely the sweetest cereal that we were allowed to have, but I think because of that, I expected it to taste like a sugar cereal that I might have at, say, my grandparents' house, and I was like, oh, so close, but no. It definitely didn't toe that fine line between cutting the roof of your mouth open and then dissolving to mush. I, I remember that from the Captain Crunch experience the, the few times I got to have it as a kid. Yes, it, it was a poor substitute for Smurfberry Crunch. Oh, that would turn your milk blue. Uh, purple, in fact. Oh, red and blue. Yeah. Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? Let's do it. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you want to start with? Let's uh, start with just gotta be a sucker. That was a tricky one in this issue. Okay. In every issue of a Defenders comic book, there is one character who has to act in a manner inconsistent with their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. 
To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, Corey, who was your sucker? So I went in this issue with Nighthawk as my sucker for hmm. a couple reasons. One, as soon as they show up in Valhalla, he basically listens to Hellcat and goes with the flow. Right. Normally, he's really always just trying to, especially in uncertain situations, you know, really assert his authority and claim that he's in charge of things. And it was weird for me to see him just be like, okay, well, yeah, if you think that's the right thing to do, let's go fight with that army. Yeah, I think he says at one point, yeah, it doesn't seem like we've got any choice, so I guess I'll go along with Olerus. Like, he's definitely more a throw a tantrum in a situation like that kind of guy. Yeah, so that kind of removing agency from himself was a little refreshing. And then also later on in the book on page 14, I think he admits to having no idea what's going on, (laughs) (laughs) which also you, you don't often hear that sort of what could be read as a self-deprecating statement from him. No, normally we have to do the heavy lifting of deprecating him. Exactly. So, yeah, that was a refreshing uh, sucker category for me for those reasons. Yeah, I found mine a little bit less refreshing. I went with Valkyrie for her lack of compassion for Barbara Norris. She is glad that Barbara Norris is banished to hell. She at one point says that She has to get vengeance on her so that they can finally be even because she owes her one. And when you think about it, what does she owe her one for? For taking over her body and riding around in it, which Valkyrie has been doing to Barbara Norris for 60 some odd issues. Like, at the very least, they're a little bit closer to being even at that point. And throughout her situation, having taken over Barbara's body, Val has been conflicted about it and is trying to make sure that the body is preserved so that it can be returned to Barbara at some point. And all of that compassion, all of that worrying about the person that I think in some way she has grown closer to through living in her body is completely out the window. And that just seemed really off to me. Yeah, that was pretty jarring. I mean, certainly not fair for Barbara Norris, but Maybe part of it was Val has just really come to realize how trying it was to be the object of Jack Norris's affection. Oh, totally. And it's some sort of a misplaced, you know, frustration. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Yeah, so earlier we were talking about how we liked, or I was talking about how I liked some of the battle scenes. On page seven, there's a a big one with all kinds of outfits and costumes. Wait, wait, wait. I think we have the same one. Did you pick the Roman centurion who was there for some reason? Yeah. My notes say Romans? (laughs) Yeah. Mine said Roman centurion? Question mark. (laughs) And that was the only one that I picked. It's amazing that we picked the same one. That is so funny. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a guy who's dressed in, he's got like the skirt made out of leather straps and he's got like the centurion mohawk hat. And it was like, wait, what's this guy doing in Norse battle heaven? Are they just getting people from all over the world? Huh. It made me think. I had the same reaction. Other than that, I mean, we've seen most of the fashion in this issue in previous issues. There's the weird peasant guy that the Hulk is shake yelling at. Which I love that panel so much. I feel so bad for that guy. Can you imagine how scared you would be? <laughs> I don't have to imagine because I can see it on his face. It is very reminiscent of Sal Buscema's art in that his face is the terrified black trapezoid of fright 
that you often see. Um, he doesn't have the stalactites of spit coming down on it, but it's still, it's a very salbucema face and I really appreciated it. But yeah, other than that, he's just wearing kind of like a brown tunic and what really appears to be a cereal bowl on his head. Yeah, like an upside down uh, ramen bowl. Mm-hmm. You know what else is weird about that panel is that kind of double-footed drop kick that Hellcat is doing in the background. Yeah, where is she coming from? I don't know. It looks like she was like on a, a catapult. <laughs> oh, Corey. Sorry, that was almost accidental. Like, if the Hulk wasn't in that panel, I would assume that he just threw her like a lawn dart, because that's what it looks like is happening. Mm-hmm. She's like doing a pencil dive onto a, a bad guy. And it must be nighttime in Valhalla, despite the clear skies in that panel, because Nighthawk is picking up a guy over his head like he don't weigh a thing, and it's got to take at least the strength of two strong men to do that. Yeah, that's got to be hard to do, and it's not a little guy either, and so I think it's one of those Romans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other than that, there are some very nice elaborate hats going on by both Hela, who we've talked about her hat before, and Odin has a pretty nice hat with some giant gold wings on the side of it, which is a pretty cool-looking look for him. Did you have any other fashion? I did make a note of Odin's guard on that same page, page 11, where he's got the fruit bat hat. His guard has, like, a really serious bushy white mustache. That's pretty sweet. It's a nice stash. And then the nose guard, I don't know what that piece of the armor is called, but the thingy that protects his nose on his helmet comes all the way down to the top of the mustache. It's very symmetrical. Do you think it's possible that the mustache is part of the nose guard? It's entirely possible. Hmm, I would say borderline plausible. He's also got some fun little stubby horns coming off of his hat. I think that maybe what Odin is really pissed about at Hela for is having a more elaborate hat than he has, because you see that he makes sure that his guard has just the little stubby horns and not the giant golden wings on the side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Hela's headgear is wider than her arm length, I would say. Indeed, which brings us to our next category. Behold or be gone. Before we get into the meat of that, I do want to mention that both the words behold and be gone are used at least once in this issue. Oh, nice. Which was kind of fun. But for the behold or beyond category, the question I am going to put to you, Corey, be is... What did I say? Behold or beyond. Oh, ooh. <laughs> Let's file that one away. Yeah, bed, bath, and behold. <laughs> so, for the behold or be gone, the question I am putting to you, Corey, is working in any capacity at a haberdasher in Asgard. Now, you can be the owner of this haberdashery. You can be a hat seller there. Is this a job you want? What is the catch? Because this sounds pretty awesome. I mean, there's an upside, definitely. Those are some rad hats. I think the downside would be if you upset a customer, there are going to be consequences because it seems like Asgard is a place of disproportionate response. The other, for me, downside would be if I am the owner of this business, I have to find staff to run it. And it really doesn't seem like anybody in Asgard is a competent manager, which means that you are either running it yourself and having to boss gods around, which I think there's a chance that they'll resent, 
or you are having to entrust the management of the store to an Asgardian, and we've seen how they run things. So, I mean, I can see it being a frustrating proposition, but those are some rad fucking hats. So, I don't know, where do you fall on this? I'm going to say that's a full behold for me, because the problems that you outlined with running a business are not exclusive to Asgard. That's true. But I would also maybe give a begone to running a business in general. <laughs> well, I, I guess you, you and I differ there. But I like the idea of not working for somebody else. I will take the risk of the wrath of an unhappy God customer and also really embrace the opportunity to make some ridiculously creative headgear because I think that there is a great audience for it there. You know what? I agree. I, I think if nothing else, I want in on that shop for the employee discount. <laughs> Those hats are so fucking rad. I want to wear an Asgard hat. I want to wear some Hella style headgear. Shit's so good. Yep. I think I would be very frustrated, perhaps even more frustrated than you in this situation. But I got to give it a behold. So I, for maybe the first time ever in this category, we have one behold and another behold indeed all right well i don't know if that means we are going to be business partners or will be business competitors but i hope it works out oh gosh i mean it probably wouldn't be the only haberdashery in asgard we should probably join forces then we could franchise Ooh, we'll open one next to the shenanigans <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, I want these things throughout the nine realms. Like you open one in Svartalfheim, you open one in Alfheim, you get some uh, some more breathable hats for Muspelheim. Mm -hmm. I think this place is going to take off. And then we can open our sister company, which sells linens and such, that is called Bed Bath and Behold. <laughs> uh, nowhere to go but up. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I, for favorite sound effect, am going to go with the destruction of Shark Mountain, a, a two-part sound effect that's on page 23, starting with Bruma and ending with Krakoom. Mm, I enjoyed those. I liked uh, some of the later on battle noises of Bavoom and Kavoom. I just thought those were pretty fun, but I think all of those are the noise of the Hulk smashing things. It's a pretty extended fight scene of Hulk versus the mountain, and at no point did I have any misgivings that the Hulk was going to lose that battle with the mountain. Yeah, nor did I. Not like the U.S. military was going to get in there and knock him out again. It seems like, I don't know, maybe you leave Popo and Cassiolina inside operating the giant evil space laser. I mean, if that thing can shoot to Midgard, it could presumably shoot people in Asgard, too, and just double kill them right there. That's uh, probably, once again, a failure of leadership or, or management that you're looking at. I really believe it is. And let's talk about that a little bit more. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who is your best defender? Who is your worst offender? So for my best, despite the obvious lack of agency that she has about a story that is ostensibly all about her, I did like that she came down on the right side of the battle and that makes her the only defender who did so. 
in the issue, so I had to give it to Val. Right, from the start, because by the end of the issue, all the defenders are on Team Hella. But yeah, I guess I get that. I was pretty frustrated by her lack of compassion for Barbara Norris and also her general inefficiency in this issue. So I had my best defender being Popo for uh, coming up with that good prank about making the uh, the shark hat open and close. <laughs> Oh, so you're you are saying that because he did a prank, he was actually fighting on the side with the defenders and thus can be eligible for the category? Well, the thing about this issue is at some point in the issue, the defenders were fighting on either side. So almost any character in the book is eligible as a defender because uh, Patsy and Hellcat and the Hulk are on Team Olorus with Popo. So I think he is eligible for that category. Oh, I see. That's the uh, fighting at cross-purposes loophole. Okay, I'll accept it. And I did use that same general principle to choose my worst offender, and I chose Olorus because he is so (laughs) inefficient as a leader. He is a terrible, terrible boss, and in ways that he did not seem like he was beforehand. He had this complicated Machiavellian scheme that was like, oh, yes, I'm going to lure Valkyrie into this trap and gets to this point in the battle. And then it's like, uh, I don't know, I guess just like bash the forces against each other. I don't know. Yeah, he really could have won everything with his Shark Mountain apparatus, but he, he just didn't. Bad job. He did a bad job in that regard. Uh, he did not promote from within the company, which I think had to alienate a lot of the people who went to his side early, just being told like, oh, these new guys who just arrived, they're now in charge, despite them having no experience in this capacity. So do whatever they tell you to do. The whole thing, just from from soup to nuts, terrible job, Olorus. Just because you knew how to run skiing and archery doesn't mean you get to be the god of death. He's unqualified for the job, and he does a bad job in his attempt to gain the job. Yeah, fair enough. I can't argue with that. Who did you have as the worst offender? So I I went a little more literal in sticking with the (laughs) actual defenders, and um, I had a Hulk for, yes, he did a good job that he destroyed Shark Mountain, but I don't like his unqualified psychological diagnosis that he did. No. Of Barbara Norris. And I really don't like that he threw a rock at Aragorn and knocked Val out. That was not good at all. So I gave him the worst. Yeah, both of those things. Just because he doesn't like the old outfit. I'm not crazy about the old outfit either, but I don't hate the boob cones that much. I'm not going to disable a horse because of it. Yeah, don't do that. You know, take a beat. Think about things before you throw a giant rock at them. And in general, don't throw a giant rock at a horse. In general. I mean, sure, there are exceptions, <laughs> obviously. But in general, I think that's a good principle to operate from. What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? Man, I haven't had pie for so long. Pie is good. Pie is very good. I went with the, the opening exposition on the splash page. Hearken ye. The dynamic defenders are dead at the hands of Olorus the Unmerciful, pretender to the mantle of the god of death. And uh, it goes on and says some other stuff, but I, I just really like that particular turn of phrase, pretender to the mantle of the god of death. That 
really kind of sums up his general doing a bad job at everything and thinking that he can fill the shoes of a position that he's he's not cut out for. Yeah, I think that's a really good choice. And I also like that it starts with Harkin Yi because it does set the table for the fact that there is a lot more flowery Asgardian, and by Asgardian, I mean like Elizabethan English speech in this issue, which I generally found to be a lot of fun. That being said, my favorite words in this issue were a lot more simple. And by words, it's really word. And it is the Hulk saying, wrong. Oh, yeah, that was pretty great. It really cracked me up. Harokin says, no power we wield is capable of smashing an entire mountain. And the Hulk just looks at him through his weird emo bangs that he has in that panel and just says, wrong. And it really cracked me up. Yep, that was my favorite Hulk moment in the whole comic. More than him shout fighting the peasant? Oh, yeah, that just, I felt so bad for the peasant it was hard for me to enjoy it i did a little bit but that did still crack me up but yeah just the hook saying wrong and then jumping off to smash the shit out of a mountain that was by far my favorite words what was your favorite panel boy yeah there there was a lot of pretty interesting art to choose from the one that i did have funnily enough at the top of my list is page 23 called hulk wrong which i just (laughs) talked about I like how it zooms in on his face, and he's just so very sure of himself. And yeah, he does have kind of a unusually emo look. I had a couple uh, runner-ups. I liked the bridge to Asgard on page 10. Yeah, I liked that one too. It's just kind of an establishing shot of Asgard, but I like it whenever we see the Bifrost bridge. I like the use of rainbows in what is otherwise a more kind of heavy metal aesthetic. I think they go really well together, and I think that's pretty cool. Why is it called a Bifrost if it's a rainbow? Maybe because light can refract through ice. Two kinds of ice? I don't know. Maybe it got there by frost. <laughs> that's how it arrives. Oh, uh, okay. I had a, a couple other backup panels. I liked the zoom in on Barbara Norris's face when she's yelling at everybody on page 17. Yeah, there is a light glinting in her eyes that I really appreciated. I don't agree with the analysis of the Hulk and Kyle and Patsy that you can judge the state of someone's mental stability purely by appearance, but she definitely has an angry look in her eye. So she's at least mad in that sense and seems pretty happy about it. Yeah, what I liked about the panel is that it captures a lot of emotion in a pretty small space with a small part of somebody's face being shown. So kudos to the artwork on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my favorite panels, and I think actually my favorite panel, with the possible exception of the peasant shake, was on page 23. And I looked at it like Olerus forgetting where he parked the mountain and having to beep the key fob. It's uh, the scene where Olerus just gets out his keys to the mountain and starts poking at him to get it to start up. Yeah, that somehow didn't occur to me, despite being something that I do almost every time I drive somewhere. (laughs) I just really liked it because it made me think that, like, oh, he forgot where he parked the mountain. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Boop, boop. (laughs) Any other backups? The the final one was what I call the Battle Royale on page 7, where it's just a giant fight. Big melee fight. It is very odd for me that taking part in the fight, Valkyrie still did not notice that the Hulk was involved. Like, 
he basically was the battle. Him and, I guess, Kyle and Patsy seemed to be doing the only damage on Team Olerus because all of the other new recruits are just muscly guys who don't know how to fight. It really seemed like all of the battle was the Hulk, and the fact that she was involved in the battle, is watching the battle, is surveying the battle, and doesn't notice that the Hulk is there is really, really weird. It is weird. One of the other things I appreciated in that panel is the horse's face. He's supposed to be kind of like rolling his eyes with the madness of the battle, but it kind of looks like he's giving side eye to the camera or to the viewer. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe this shit? (laughs) Yeah. Is that the horse that's wearing armor on his face or is that a different horse? I think it's a different horse. This one just has a kind of a fancy bridle. Okay. Yeah. The horse I'm thinking of is on page 10. Yep. No, different, different horse. Well, we don't know. Could be the same horse with a, after a costume change. Oh, right. Like he's uh, trying to sow confusion in the army. Like, oh, that's a different horse. Just changing outfits in the middle of it. That horse is an agent of chaos. That one's also looking right at the camera, actually. (laughs) Yeah. These horses breaking down the fourth wall. Cheeky. Man. Cheeky horse. And a horse has a lot of cheek because their heads are so fucking big. Mm -hmm. Too big. Now, Corey... We both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Hmm. I don't know really how I feel about this one with him throwing the rock at Aragorn and everything. But Hulk was taking that, I don't know how you put it, like a warrior monk approach to things where he really wanted peace at the end of the day. And I think there's a point at which he says, if smashing this mountain is what it takes to bring peace, I'll go smash the mountain. So he was taking that peace may require violence to be brought about and that uh, being peaceful may require action. Mm. Otherwise, it's just being passive. So the Hulk's rule is that peace can only be attained through superior firepower? Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> where where he's coming from, which is why I'm conflicted about it. I mean, there's a certain logic to it, but it sounds terrible. Okay, fair enough. I had the Hulk's rule being that promotion is not necessarily an appropriate reward. Because we see in Olerus's army, just because the Hulk is good at smashing, you don't necessarily want to put him in charge of other people smashing. And it's not something that's necessarily going to reward him or mean that he's good at it either. I think it's a lesson that society in general could stand to learn. It's Is it what it's called, the Peter principle, that everyone is promoted to their level of incompetence, where if somebody's doing a good job, then you promote them until they stop doing a good job. And so everybody's bad at their job. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. So don't do that is the Hulk's rule. <laughs> nice. Maybe we should put him in charge of our haberdashery. Corey, did you not just listen to the Hulk's rule? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> I just sailed right over my head. <laughs> he's good at smashing. He's probably good at running a hat store. <laughs> Uh, No, it's just the fact that his rule was to not um, promote people. (laughs) So you want to promote him for that. So we'll promote him. just (laughs) Into a position that he will not excel at. Well, he's not going to promote anybody else. That's my point. Okay, never mind. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board on this business plan. (laughs) I don't think we need to redraw the whole business. Just maybe don't put the Hulk in charge of it. Okay, I'll take it out. Sorry. I'm starting to rethink hiring Papa as an employee, though. (laughs) 
He's good at hat pranks, so, you know, maybe he can run a haberdashery. Uh. He has shown a certain knowledge of the product that I think would be useful. He's definitely got the right attitude. He really wants to run things. Yeah, I I think maybe one of the downsides would be that his own hat is so shitty. Mm. Like, he's just got a dumb pointy hat, which, I don't know, it makes me not trust him to run the place. We'll figure something out. Yeah, no, I'm sure there's an angle here that'll work. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, February, what wongs must we write? So, there was a little show that debuted towards the end of the month on the 20th of February that Wong and and Steve also both became really big fans of. They would look forward to when it would come on and, you know, get a big bowl of popcorn and a brazier of Jamaican incense going for a a relaxing evening in. And uh, that show was a little uh, Connecticut-based program called This Old House. Ooh! Yeah. With Bob Vila? With Bob Vila, the original one. And, and they got super into it and were just like really watching it quite fastidiously. At one point in the first season, Wong had a premonition which came to him in the form of a dream that Bob Vila would later on in the life of the season run into some really serious trouble if he were to. And this is where it gets a little fuzzy because, you know, dream logic and everything. But Bob Vila would come into some serious trouble with his career if he were to speak for the house. Hmm. Wong also received the message to beware the despot. He woke up from this really quite troubled and he had strong affection for Bob Vila and the way that he hosted the show and uh, the banter with head carpenter Noam Abrams, and Mm -hmm. um, wound up writing a a letter advising him, Dear Mr. Vila, it's come to my attention that there could be some serious issues with your career, etc. Basically advising him to stay away from politics, because when he heard Speak for the House, he thought, oh, wow, he could ascend to become the Speaker of the House, but obviously that's not going to go well for him, and it's going to hurt his career. And also to, um, to stay away from Iran, Wong having assumed that due to the recent revolution there that the Ayatollah Khomeini was the despot being referenced in his dream and uh, sent off the letter. Uh, Ways down the road, it turns out that Wong's premonition was slightly off, maybe due to the extra brazier of uh, Jamaican incense that they had left burning, who knows. But in fact, the Speaker for the House thing was about Rickle Home Centers, which is a New Jersey-based chain of stores that Bob Vila later spoke for in a manner of speaking because he wound up doing a TV ad for this uh, Rickle Home Centers chain. And it turned out then later, because of that, he was fired from WGBH Boston because the biggest competitor of the Rickle Home Centers was the Home Depot. And Home Depot was an underwriter of the show and dropped its sponsorship of this old house after Bob Vila made the commercials, which is why he got canned. So it's unfortunate. You know, Wong did his best, tried to help somebody he respected out, but the message didn't quite uh, come across the way it needed to. Well, it's interesting that one thing Wong was up to had to do with a television program that both he and Steve enjoyed, because one of the other things that he was up to had to do with a TV show about which they had a split opinion. Steve, in early February of 79, became absolutely obsessed with a television show. And it was a show called Super Train. Steve 
was so excited. He kept saying, Wong, Wong, they're finally making it. Do you remember how when we would watch The Love Boat, I would always say, this show is almost perfect, but what if they were on a train? It's finally happening, Wong. Super train, super train, super train. Choo-choo, Wong. (laughs) And Wong dealt with this as best he could for a while. He had some high hopes for the program himself. It was co-created by Donald Westlake. And Wong enjoyed the Parker novels that Westlake wrote under the pseudonym Richard Stark. But unfortunately, the TV show Super Train was not the success that Steve had been hoping for. And Steve would just not shut up about it. Wong tried to get it off of Steve's mind. They went and watched The Warriors, which debuted on February 9th. They went and watched that in the theater. But throughout it, whenever they were on the subway or in a subway scene, Steve just kept going, Wong, but what if they were on a super train instead? The train's so big, it has swimming pools. There's no swimming pool on that subway. And eventually Wong just fucking snapped and was like, Steve, if you don't shut up about the super train, I swear to God, I am going to blot out the sun. <laughs> And Steve was just like, Wong, you can't blot out the sun. And no, Wong could not blot out the sun. But Wong had been reading his Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and knew that Steve did not lower himself to read the old farmer's almanac and was thus unaware that there was an eclipse coming on February 26th. So on February 26th, there was a total eclipse of the sun. Steve went outside and was like, Wong... I'll be quiet about the super train. I'm very proud of you for your magical studies. Just one more choo-choo. And Wong shook his head sadly. And Steve said, fine, no more super train. And for good or ill, a few months later, super train was canceled, going down in history as one of the biggest flops in television history. And that was what Wong was doing with his Wong doings in February of 1979. Wow, that was very clever of him with the Eclipse thing. Well, you know, he'd read his Mark Twain. Good for Wong. Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. Anytime. The portal allows. And thank you for joining us, listeners. This has been a real treat. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a few different ways you can do so. One of them is through our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We can also be contacted electronically via ttwasteland at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you in either venue. Uh, We're also all up in many aspects of the internet. Uh, We're on the Facebook, the Tumblr, the Twitter, the uh, LinkedIn, of course. I believe a fan made a Grindr account for us, so I don't know. You can check that out if you like. We're probably on seacaptainsonly.com, I would imagine. And uh, Lisa runs an Instagram page for the site. So, you know, why don't you check us out in one of those places? If you'd like to leave us a review, I think that would be a a fun time for us and for you. Have some fun with it. Get creative, you know? Or don't. Just copy and paste a different one. As long as it has five stars on it, well, that'll be great for me. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I've been working some fill-in shifts bartending lately, and I overheard a 
customer tell a story that amused me where she had recently had a one night stand and was brainstorming ways that she could have perhaps let the gentleman know that this was fun, but she did want it to just be a one night stand. And one of her ideas was a postcoital exclamation of, okay, like and subscribe. <laughs> oh, wow. Which I thought was very, very funny. <laughs> Mixed message, though, with the subscribe part. Yeah, that's true. I, I think you would get the general point from Tome, though, that this was perhaps not a serious relationship. Yeah, one would, one would think. <laughs> so, you know, like and subscribe. <laughs> no strings attached. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you want to go into whatever application you're using to listen to this uh, show and uh, leave us a positive review, I think that would be a very nice thing for you to do. It helps people find the show, which uh, a lot of people have been doing recently, which is nice. If you would like to support the show monetarily, I would definitely appreciate that. Uh, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a ton of bonus material, including the monthly show that Lisa and I co-host called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. It is a program in which we discuss Howard the Duck comics from the 70s, but there is also a lot of other material up there. There's a number of bonus episodes that we've recorded of this show. There is a bunch of video reviews of classic comics that I do. And mostly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue. So, you know, there's that. So, until next time, feel free to do all those things I just told you to do. And coming soon to one of the nine realms nearest you, you'll be able to visit us at Bed Bath and Behold! Bye! Bye! And maybe soon you can visit us at Bed Bath and Beyond. Behold. Oh yeah, sorry, shit. Yeah, no. <laughs> don't want to get in trouble with the, the actual no. name brand outlet. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I don't know if they're franchised in Asgard, but still, probably better safe than sorry. Um, <laughs> let's let's so, try that again. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>